A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Christina McFarlane in for Julia Chatterley. Just ahead on today's show, Ukraine attack. Seven people have lost their lives and more than 80 have been injured after a Russian missile strike in eastern Ukraine. All this as Western nations grow increasingly concerned over the progress of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Complete coverage on that just ahead. Plus, tough talk. Senior U.S. diplomat Victoria Nuland meets military leaders in Niger after their coup. She calls the meeting frank and difficult. All this as Niger closes its airspace to commercial flights. And rough weather. Hundreds of U.S. flights delayed or cancelled after strong storms slammed the East Coast. Hundreds of thousands still without power will have the latest. And in the Women's World Cup, France trounces Morocco for nil and heads to the quarterfinals. Uh, Colombia beat Jamaica 2. All the football action coming up for you just ahead. But first, a quick look on Wall Street, where futures are pointing to a weak open after an across-the-board rally for US stocks on Monday. All the major averages currently set to fall by more than half a percent. Uh, European shares lower too. All of this after an almost 2% tumble in Hong Kong. The Hang Seng dropping amid weak Chinese economic data. Details on that in just a moment. But first, a double missile strike in Ukraine. The target? The eastern city of Pogrovsk. At least seven people have been killed and more than 80 injured after the Russian missiles hit a residential area. Meanwhile, uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive appears to be running into difficulties. U.S. and Western officials telling CNN they're receiving increasingly sobering assessments about Ukraine's progress. Our Jim Shuto has been tracking this, joins us now live. And, and Jim, the, the details I was reading in your report earlier are very concerning and a shift really from the optimistic tone we saw at the start of the counteroffensive from Ukraine. Tell us what you've been learning. A marked shift, certainly since the beginning of the counteroffensive, but even in the last couple of weeks. And this is a consistent read I'm hearing from both U.S. and European officials in the military, uh, in diplomacy, lawmakers as well. Uh, and they see this counteroffensive largely as stalled at this point. They have hope for change, but pragmatically, they see lasting challenges here. And a couple of factors in that. One is just the uh, difficulty of breaching Russian defensive. Three defenses, three defensive belts, lines marked by tens of thousands of mines that have caused just staggering losses among Ukrainian forces when they've tried to breach them. That's led to tactical changes where they pulled back some of their units as a result. But there are also longer-term issues here, Christina, uh, the difficulty of training up Ukrainian forces in some of these newly supplied uh, advanced Western weapon systems and doing so very quickly. In some circumstances, just eight weeks of training uh, on new uh, tanks, for instance. Uh, so trying to transform Ukrainian forces into to mass mechanized units, just hard to do in that time frame with success. A and then there is also a time pressure issue with the approach of fall, changing weather. There is pressure, pressure now to achieve results and a sense that that time frame is rapidly shortening. So, Jim, what do you think this assessment will have? What impact do you think this will have on Western allies? I mean, is there anything they can do right now, as you mentioned, with winter approaching to uh, accelerate or ramp up uh, weaponry supplies to Ukraine that's actually going to make a difference at this point? So there is no magic bullet. There's no one single weapon system that, that you could send today uh, that would 
change the dynamic significantly. And you have the issue of having to train up on those systems. For instance, look at the U.S. Abrams tank. They were just approved for shipment after many weeks of training and will not arrive there until the fall. It's just it's just a it's a it's a long timeline. You can't get those weapon systems there quickly and train up Ukrainian units on them sufficiently in a short frame, uh, in a short span of time. So that's the realistic view here. Their, Their worry is that as this continues to stall, if it does continue to stall, that you begin to see division among Western allies with some pushing to stay the course, but others saying, hey, wait a second, we have to step back now and think about next steps. There's even concern that Ukraine will face some pressure to sue for peace, that if this continues to be solved, that they'll face more pressure to make territorial uh, concessions in order to achieve peace, which is something, of course, Ukrainian officials uh, publicly are very much loath to do. And many of their Western allies don't want Ukraine to do, but they are aware uh, that those divisions can become more pronounced uh, the more this uh, this counteroffensive in the in the east and in the south remains stalled. Yeah, and Jim, this is really the first time we've heard of uh, this type of reporting on on the realities of what is going on in the mm. ground among Western officials. So uh, we appreciate you bringing us that, Jim Shuto. Thank you. Thanks, Christina. Well, let us turn to Nick Robertson for the latest on those missile strikes in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Nick, uh, as we understand that this town uh, where these double, this double missile strike happened was very close to the front line. And there are indications that the missile strike was actually deliberately delayed, stalled into two missile strikes to target uh, emergency services there on the ground. Tell us what you know. Yeah, in Pokrovsk. And it's not too dissimilar uh, from the attack that took place on another pizza restaurant in Kramatorsk, which isn't very far away. The first Russian missile, there was one Russian missile in the case of Kramatorsk, but it hit right around dusk when the pizza restaurant would have been at its busiest. It had devastating consequences in Kramatorsk. And now uh, here in Pokrovsk, the same, a popular pizza restaurant. I've been in there before as we stopped passing through that town. Not too far from the front lines, but still distant from it. There was no evidence when we were there earlier this year of any military facilities around there. And by what the Russians have done or through what they've done, which is fire one missile, bring in the rescue workers and then 40 minutes later fire another missile, which the Ukrainians say is not uncommon, sometimes called a double tap, although that's not the reference. That's not how the Ukrainians are specifying it. But it clearly, in the Ukrainian minds, is intended to cause catastrophic casualties among the rescue and recovery workers. And we know that the deputy head of the region's emergency services was killed in that second missile attack. And look at the list of casualties, 81 casualties, uh, 31 civilians, two of those children, and more than half of them were more than half of the casualties were um, either police or rescue workers or military on scene to try to help out. Seven people killed in total. Uh, one of them, as I said, an emergency worker, another one, um, a military uh, a military person. So it seems to be clear that what Russia was intending to do here, and it was intentional, was to A, hit a crowded restaurant when it was busy, and then hit again all the rescue workers who came in to help. Yeah, uh, seven dead, as you say, Nick, but many, many more injured in that, what, you, what you're calling a, a deliberate attempt there. Uh, Nick Robertson, uh, live for us. Thank you. 
Now, there's a growing push towards a diplomatic resolution to the coup in Niger. U.S. Acting Deputy Secretary of State Victoria Nuland met with some of the leaders of the military junta on Monday. She said they had a frank and at times difficult conversation, but no progress was made. Meanwhile, junta leaders from neighbouring Mali and Burkina Faso also met Niger's leaders. And Niger's prime minister said the junta want to reopen talks with the regional bloc ECOWAS. Well, Larry Madoa is joining me now uh, live for the latest on this. And, and Larry, after setting that tough deadline, it does seem that ECOWAS have now walked back from military intervention, saying instead that they're going to meet on Thursday. And there does seem to be a lack of urgency now around this uh, regarding ECOWAS, ECOWAS's next moves. Do you have any idea of what those next steps may be, what the strategy is now? They appear to have been buying time, Christina, because you can't give this tough one-week deadline and then once it passes, you say nothing for a day and then say, okay, fine, we're going to call another emergency summit on Thursday, which allows you plenty of wheel room. Now, we think we understand why. ECOWAS wrote to Niger's school leaders asking them to allow a joint delegation from ECOWAS, the Economic Committee of West African States, the African Union, and the UN. They were expected in Niamey today. Now, we just obtained this letter from the Niger coup leaders' foreign ministry back to ECOWAS, rejecting that re request for security grounds. I want to read a part of that letter from the foreign ministry in Niger to ECOWAS. It says, The current context of anger and revolt of the populations following the sanctions imposed by ECOWAS does not allow to welcome the state delegation in the required serenity and security. The postponement of the mission to Niamey is necessary, as is the revision of certain aspects of the program, including meetings with certain personalities which cannot take place for obvious security reasons in this atmosphere of threatened aggression against Niger. So, translation, these Niger coup leaders are saying that we will not meet with ECOWAS delegations or mediators until you remove the sanctions that you've placed against us, and they're blaming it on the anti-ECOWAS sentiment that exists in the country, which is interesting because General Abdurrahman Tiani, who's declared himself president of the country, did meet with a delegation from Burkina Faso and Mali. They have bandied up together, and the spokesperson for Mali had very strong words for the international community. I would like to remind you that Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger have been dealing with for over 10 years with the negative social, economic, security, political, and humanitarian consequences of NATO's hazardous adventure in Libya. Of course, we ask ourselves, if it took us 10 years, how many years would it take us to get over another adventure of the same nature in Niger? If you're keeping track, this alliance of coup leaders now involves Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, and Guinea, who are all controlled by military juntas. So General Abdurrahman Tiani did not meet with Victoria Nuland, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State from the U.S. She was not allowed to meet with the detained President Mohamed Bazoum either. But now you see what the priorities are. They're telling ECOWAS, no, this mediation will not work unless you relax the sanctions, then we can talk. Yeah, well, we will wait to see what uh, and how ECOWAS uh, respond to that. Larry Madoa there reporting live for us. Thanks so much, Larry. Now, brand new numbers out of China show the world's second largest economy continuing to weaken imports and exports, both falling by double digits last month. The numbers are shorter increase calls for new Beijing stimulus. Mark Stewart has the story for us. Here is where things stand. This is the third straight month that Chinese exports have declined, their biggest drop in more than three years. 
In fact, if we break down the data even further, this is the biggest drop since February 2020. That's when we saw the initial COVID-19 outbreak impacting trade and production. So what's at play? We heard from an analyst who points out things have changed since the same time last year when exports saw a jump as the global economy started to move once again and prices were higher. There's also a feeling that things could get worse as global demand is falling and consumers question their spending levels as the world still tries to gain footing after the pandemic, including fears of recessions. If we look back to last October, exports shrunk as we saw both inflation and interest rates rise, negatively impacting global demand. And then there's the bigger picture. China is the world's second largest economy. It's looking for some new energy. If there's no choice but to lower prices in hopes of raising demand, the economy could be stagnant. So what about a possible solution? Some analysts want Beijing to come up with things such as incentives to help give demand a boost. Mark Stewart, CNN, Tokyo. Well, China's economic data is not helping the mood on global markets. A downgrade of U.S. small and mid-sized banks by ratings agency Moody's is also hurting sentiment. Moody's warning that a ratings cut for larger U.S. banks may be on its way as well. Rahel Solomon's joining us here with the details. And it seems, Rahel, that fears over the banking turmoil we saw in March are still present. Just walk us through what's prompted this move. Right, Christina. So this warning from Moody is enough to raise some alarm bells, also enough to raise some eyebrows and send shares pre-market of some of these banks lower. And I can show you for uh, for a moment. Bank of New York, U.S. Bank Corp, Truist, Cullen Frost. These are all large U.S. banks. You can see they're off between about 3%, let's call it, and 3.5%. So Moody's is saying that it is concerned and watching potentially uh, concerns about weaker profitability with some of these banks. Also concerns about, and we can pull this up for you, concerns about the commercial real estate space. Uh, You can imagine with work from home being a trend that has stuck around a little bit longer than I think most would have expected after the pandemic. That has made commercial real estate, that has made office space less valuable than it once was. And so uh, the smaller and the regional U.S. banks find themselves more exposed to that type of risk. So, Christina, as you pointed out, not far from when we had those banking tremors earlier this year, you know, even in a vacuum, if we were to get a warning like this from Moody's, it wouldn't necessarily inspire great confidence. But coming after uh, the banking turmoil that we saw earlier this year, it gives you a sense of why we're seeing the reaction we're seeing in the larger, broader market. The markets, of course, haven't opened, but Dow futures are off about 250 points. And so it gives you a sense of why there is a larger concern even outside of the banking sector because of the type of year we have had. I should also say Moody's saying that it is watching for a potential mild recession in early 2024. That also not sitting well with investors, Christina. Yeah, we will wait to see what happens when the markets do open. Rahel Solomon, they're breaking it down for us. Thanks, Rahel. Now, July's record-breaking temperatures show it was by far the hottest month on record, and it's giving us a glimpse of what it will be like to live on an ever-warmer planet. The EU's Copernicus Climate Change Service says temperatures were around 1.5 degrees warmer than in the pre-industrial era. Climate scientists agree that climate change of greater than one and a half degrees could be disastrous for humanity. Well, July saw deadly heat waves and record temperatures on several continents, as well as unprecedented heat. Our Bill Weir is CNS chief climate correspondent joining us here. Um, And Bill, what was kind of crazy to me is that climate experts are predicting that July's record is actually unlikely to stand for long and could even be exceeded this year. 
Absolutely. We're just beginning to enter the natural El Nino warming patterns in the Pacific Ocean, which will only ramp up temperatures even more. And this is not the first time we've sort of broken this threshold. People remember that number, 1.5 degrees Celsius, is the, is the, should be the ceiling of the Paris Accords. We don't want to go beyond that uh, as a planet for a permanent new temperature set. But we've broken this about 10 times in the past, but that was always in the winter. And this is significant because it's the first summer month that has created this new record that has gone 1.5 above what we're used to, what the our sort of our Goldilocks climate that life as we know it evolved in right now. And this could be just uh, some of the coolest summers of the rest of our lives, unfortunately, because so much of this is built up over centuries into the Earth systems. The oceans absorb 90 percent of that heat. We're now seeing the numbers to match uh, those jaw-dropping, you know, amounts of of temperature that's been absorbed over our lifetimes right now. And four out of five humans experience that extreme heat on many continents this summer as more and more people start to really feel what this new normal is like. So, Bill, you mentioned the Paris Agreement in 2015. I mean, is that still is that agreement still realistic? Do countries really need to start rethinking their climate goals in the wake of this? I think most scientists, most climate observers would say we're going to blow past 1.5. It's 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 just inevitable, given the fact the lack of collective action around the world that needs to tackle this and just what's already built into the system there. The question is, where do we land if we can hold it below 2.0? Uh, 2.5. What does the world look like there? That's really a world without coral reefs. We don't know what that means uh, for ocean stocks going forward. So that we're in a really uncharted territory right now. There are calls to keep 1.5 alive. This is a, a psychology challenge as much as it is one of physics and technology. And some people worry that if you say we're, we're going past that target we've talked about for so long, people will give up hope. It ultimately doesn't matter. We, you know, action has to be taken both to adapt to the changes that are here and prevent the worst for the future. Yeah, it's a it's an unprecedented and very scary future, uh, quite frankly, as you lay out there, uh, Bill Weir. Thank you. You will. All right, straight ahead. The coup in Niger could have devastating effects on the country's most vulnerable. We'll discuss with the CEO of Mercy Corps after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Welcome back to First Move. Now, around the world, food prices are being driven higher. It's partly down to the extreme weather, but the aftermath of the COVID pandemic and the war in Ukraine are also factors. The UN's food agency says its index of rice prices touched a 12-year high last month as major exporting countries saw strong demand. Also, according to the UN, 120 million more people have been pushed into hunger since 2019. Mercy Corps operates in over 40 countries, including current crisis spots like Niger and Ukraine, distributing cash, food, water and other essentials. Along with other NGOs, it's warning that further instability or fresh wave of sanctions on Niger could be catastrophic for the people already struggling for survival. Joining me now is Jada Doyen McKenna. She is the CEO of Mercy Corps. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. I want to just start by talking about these uh, high food prices we're seeing globally. I mean, as I mentioned there, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, climate change have all contributed to what is a perfect storm threatening global food security. But with the advent of climate change in particular, are these high prices here to stay, do you think? Climate change has certainly exacerbated the situation. We've seen record flooding in some places like Pakistan and then record droughts in other places like the Horn of Africa. So there will be some instability baked into the market. However, the impact of one of the world's breadbaskets, Ukraine, being continually under pressure and now with this addition of a blockade of their grain through the Black Sea deal through Russia, this really throws things off quite a bit more and and makes the market even more skittish and increases our risk of extreme volatility. Yeah, and I I want to talk about the impact of that in just a minute. But uh, when we talk about um, the impact of climate change, I I was mentioning that the price of rice has hit a 12-year high. How much do you expect these crop failures we're seeing around the world to start shaping or reshaping international trade, you know, the likes of India, China, for instance, as they prioritize their domestic uh, markets? You know, unfortunately, we're already beginning to see this, as, as you've mentioned, with India recently. And so I think to some extent, the markets will start to bake those that kind of volatility in because climate change is constant and it's coming at us more rapidly. But what's more important is that we really work together to condition actors on how to respond to this volatility because actions like what we've seen just make it worse and it makes it worse for the most vulnerable people around the world. So you mentioned uh, Ukraine. Obviously, we've heard it many times before as the breadbasket of the world. And we know that Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea grain deal is catastrophic, in particular for African nations, uh, even though, you know, just recently we saw Putin hosting a summit with African nations, promising them the free delivery of grain, trying to save face as they withdrew from that grain deal. How much worse is the situation in Africa set to become uh, with food insecurity than it was, say, this time last year? So there are 25 countries in Africa that depend on Russia and Ukraine for over a third of their wheat imports. Uh, This also is things like sunflower oil and other things. When you get to the populations who are most vulnerable in Africa, obviously there's availability issue, but it even affects our ability as aid actors to support them because with increases in prices, that increases our our cost to to deliver food, and it also decreases our ability to do so. In many cases, agencies have had to lower food rations um, and and give much less than they did before. 
for because of price volatility and increased prices. I know that uh, Mercy Corps are on the ground in Niger. We've been talking about the situation unfolding there earlier in in the show, and it looks as though the threat of military intervention may have subsided for now, but now there is a sort of growing focus on diplomatic talks and uh, the the risk of further sanctions. Um, What impact will that have on a nation like Niger who are already dealing with multiple crises? Yeah, we've already seen from Niger, we've already seen some borders, uh, some access to some borders restricted, limits on bank withdrawals and and food prices increase. And so this instability, although, you know, there may have been some decent news recently, this kind of instability only, you know, the natural reaction is to start hoarding food or trying to get it and to panic. And uh, this makes a volatile situation so much more volatile for those involved. And particularly if supply chains and border crossings become disrupted, then it also impacts the ability of Nigerians to uh, to plant themselves, to get the inputs and the fertilizer and the things they need for their own planting seasons internally. So we're quite concerned about what's happening there. Yeah. And as always, it's, it's the, the most vulnerable who are most at risk. Uh, Jada Doya McKenna, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your perspective on this from Mercy Court. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, more flight misery for travellers in the U.S. as storms batter the eastern seaboard, causing major disruptions. The latest coming up. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday, a week open across the board. Disappointing Chinese export data suggesting consumers around the world are cutting back on spending. And that is putting pressure on oil prices as well. Uh, Also today, bank shares losing ground after a Moody's downgrade of the sector. And package delivery firm UPS is out with disappointing quarterly results. Now, at least two people have died after powerful storms battered the U.S. East Coast from New York to Alabama, knocking out power to hundreds of thousands of homes. Derek Van Dam has the latest. With wind gusts estimated over 75 miles per hour, the impact was immediate. Oh, my God. Holy In Mooresville, North Carolina, Tyson Winter captured this video of a tree snapping in half and falling to the ground near an apartment complex. Heavy rain, thunder and violent winds hammered cities and towns east of the Mississippi River. By Monday night, there had been more than 400 reports of strong winds across the region. And more than a million customers were without power across 11 states. In states like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Georgia and Maryland, according to poweroutage.us. Monday's severe weather is impacting around 120 million people along the eastern U.S., from downed trees in Hartford County, Maryland, to widespread damage to homes and public buildings from upstate New York all the way down to Alabama, causing a lot of mess and spreading hazards along the way. In Washington, D.C., CNN captured this video of a man removing a large branch from a city street. This photo shows downed power lines littering a roadway in Carroll County, Maryland after a storm passed through the area. Another driver captured the chaos caused by those electric poles on Maryland's Route 140 in Westminster. Maryland State Police say over 30 vehicles were stuck in the incident, but no injuries were reported. In many parts, the storm caused extreme low visibility. 
In downtown Philadelphia, a live tower camera showed the magnitude of the weather conditions. In Victory Gardens, New Jersey, several residents displaced after a tree fell on a home, bringing down power lines and crashing cars. According to CNN affiliate WABC, the house was occupied at the time, but there were no injuries reported. The storms caused major travel disruptions in the skies on Monday. According to data from FlightAware, more than 10,000 U.S. flights were impacted by the severe storms Monday. Among them, over 8,500 flights were delayed and more than 1,700 canceled. All this as new weather threats are expected to develop for Tuesday afternoon with risk of severe thunderstorms in several southern states. Well, let's get more on how all this is impacting the skies. Pete Muntean is at Regan National Airport in Virginia. Pete, what are you seeing there? What, what sort of chaos? Well, you know, a lot of people got bumped to flights today, Christina, because of all of that mayhem yesterday. 10,000 flights impacted, although just check flight of where we've seen a bit of spillover today. About 300 flights canceled so far, about 1,400 flights delayed. The FAA just implemented a ground stop for flights bound to Boston Logan International Airport, a huge international hub, so this could have a worldwide impact as well. Let's look at the big numbers for yesterday. We're talking about 1,700 flights canceled in the U.S. That puts it in the top five for cancellations since Memorial Day. 8,800 flights delayed. We're talking about a third of all flights scheduled here in the U.S. That is a huge number, and it really caused a lot of delays for a lot of folks, meaning that they were about, an, on average, about an hour and 10 minutes late arriving at their destination. The worst airports for cancellations and delays. Atlanta, which is the busiest airport in the world. Also LaGuardia in New York, here at Reagan National Airport. Uh, Newark, New Jersey, a huge hub for United Airlines. And Charlotte, which is a huge hub for American Airlines. Let's go back to the top uh, airport, that's Atlanta. That is the biggest hub for Delta Airlines, its world headquarters. It delayed a third of all of its flights scheduled yesterday. It's apologizing to customers now, saying it's working hard to get things back on track, although the FAA says we are not out of the woods just yet. We could see more ground stops, it says, as the day goes on in New England. We've already seen that one in Boston. And then we could see some issues in Florida, in Miami, in Orlando, in Fort Lauderdale. So not done just yet, Christina. No, it sounds like it. Best, I think, to just put your flights back by 24 hours at least rather than risk the chaos. <laughs> uh, Pete Muntean, thanks very much. Now, nearly 40,000 scouts from around the world have been forced to close up camp early in South Korea. The 25th World Scout Jamboree has been plagued with problems from the start. Shortages of food and beds combined with extreme hot weather put a dampener on festivities. Now scouts are leaving the main venue almost a week ahead of schedule as a typhoon is expected to hit the country. Ivan Watson has more on the effort to relocate the event. A mass evacuation of tens of thousands of scouts. The South Korean government packing teenagers from more than 150 countries around the world on more than 1,000 buses to flee an approaching typhoon. An escape from the sprawling site of the 25th World Scout Jamboree. It's been pretty bad, like really bad. Um, I don't really know what else to say. Speaking to CNN from one of the evacuation buses, these 18-year-old scouts from Sweden say they were disappointed by conditions at the camp. 
why couldn't they just plan this better? And we've been a bit angry because uh, they knew that they didn't have the resources and they still uh, decided to keep uh, going with the camp. What was supposed to be a 12-day event has been troubled from the beginning. We were particularly concerned about sanitation and the cleanliness of, of toilets that were causing severe concerns from us from a health and safety point of view. The leader of the British contingent pulled some 4,500 UK scouts and volunteers out this weekend, relocating them to hotels in the Korean capital. It's punishingly hot here in Korea. It's an unprecedented heat wave. But we were concerned about the heat relief measures that were being put in place. Meanwhile, scouts from the U.S. also pulled out, relocating to Camp Humphreys, a large U.S. military base. The August heat wave particularly punishing given the location of the Jamboree, a reclaimed tidal flat apparently devoid of natural shade. It's so hot. Uh, a lot of people are passing out and we've been forced to drink about one liter of water per hour. In the first week, hundreds of teenagers got sick from the heat, prompting the Korean government to rush air-conditioned buses to help, along with fire and medical services and extra water. With a potentially dangerous typhoon approaching, Korean organizers finally pulled the plug on Monday, telling scouts to strike camp. I feel very, very sorry for the Korean nation and the Korean people because uh, I think that they would have loved to present their country, their culture, their community in a more positive way. Despite the setbacks, some teenagers apparently applying the Cub Scout motto, do your best. We're just happy to be in the shade, in the AC, getting to cool down. Uh, and I mean, the scout motto is to meet every problem with a smile. And that's what I feel that, uh, like everyone is doing. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. Now, hundreds of people are saying goodbye to the late Irish singer Sinead O'Connor. Mourners line the streets, cheering, clapping and throwing flowers as her funeral procession drove past the singer's old house in Bray Island. O'Connor's coffin was covered in blue, white and pink flowers. A photograph of the singer could also be seen through the back window of the cortege. While her procession was public, her burial was held privately. The singer passed away last month at the age of 56. Stay with CNN. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back to First Move. Now, it's been another fantastic day of action at the Women's World Cup after Colombia advanced to the quarterfinals for the first time in their history. Uh, meanwhile, France have booked the last spot with a strong 4-0 victory over Morocco. Let's get straight out to our Patrick Snell who's been following all developments. Patrick, good to see you. I mean, I think the great thing about this stage of the competition is that no one really expected Jamaica, Colombia or Morocco to make it this far. But it's been a 
as I said, a momentous day for Colombia. I think only the second South American side in history to make it through to the quarterfinals. Yeah, after the Brazilians. And what a, what a storyline, Chris. You know, the first time we've had three African nations competing at a Women's World Cup in the knockout stages. Wonderfully powerful storylines everywhere you look. But you're quite right. A truly momentous occasion for Colombian football on this day down under. Just a short while ago on this Tuesday, the South Americans now becoming the seventh team, Chrissy, to book their spot in the quarterfinal lineup after beating Jamaica in a really close fought game. The Jamaicans themselves, as you rightly say, have so much to be proud of given all that they contributed. But this was a wonderful, wonderful performance, I will say, from Colombia as we take you to the action in Melbourne. And the winning goal was just absolute perfection. Just look at the touch here. Look at the touch and the control and the finish. Absolutely brilliant. That's Catalina Uzmae, the skipper. That goal, Chrissy, of the highest quality. Absolutely wonderful to see as we show it to you from behind the goal. Look at the curl on it. The 33-year-old becoming the first player now to score against Jamaica at this year's Women's World Cup. 1-0 the final score. Of course, that meant heartbreak for the Jamaicans who really, really should be proud of their achievement. No question. But it is the Colombians. These scenes are a joy to behold for South American football as a whole. As I would say, just a great moment for Las Cafeteras. They're now the first South American country to reach the last eight, as you said, Chrissy, since Brazil back in 2011. I want to get to France now because just a short while ago, the French sealing a very emphatic victory over Morocco. The first goal of this game coming from Cadidiato Diani opening the scoring on the quarter hour mark. And they were so much in control, the French, Chrissy. It was actually even 3-0, just kind of around the midway point in the first half. Kenza Dali and Eugenie Le Sommer adding the goals. Le Sommer, once again, the headline act for her country. She's France's all-time leading scorer, and she is that for a reason. She has a wonderful eye for goal. Hervé Renard's team, very emphatic winners. They'd get a fourth goal in the uh, second half there. Resounding, resounding victory. And it's all to play for. France, I tell you, keep an eye on them. They are getting better and better, it would seem, Chrissy, with every single game they play. Let's check in on how the quarterfinals are looking then. If we can see, and we can see, in fact, that, look, you've got the co-host there, Chrissy, taking on the French next. England, I know we'll be following that one. England, Colombia. I tell you what, Colombia, I don't think they have too much to fear against the Lionesses. That may be <laughs> controversial, I don't know. But look, Spain, Netherlands, Japan, Sweden, this tournament is fantastic. And you know what, Chrissy, it's a privilege to be covering it. It really is. Yeah, I can totally understand that sentiment, uh, Patrick. And let's see if the Lionesses raise their game because they certainly may need to after that last match against Nigeria. Patrick Snell there with all the roundup. Thanks a lot, Patrick. All right, coming up after the break, lost luggage is becoming a major problem for the airlines post-pandemic. Now travellers are finding Apple's tiny trackers are increasingly useful if the worst happens. Stay with us for a tale of cross-country tag. Welcome back to First Move. Thousands of African artisans are helping to make ends meet thanks to an innovative firm called All Across Africa. Its mission is to help craftspeople sell more goods internationally. Anna Stewart reports in today's Global Connections. 
Weavers in northern Ghana have been crafting baskets for generations, but they only began receiving regular payments for their work when these goods started lining the shelves of the world's biggest brands. When there's a steady order, we're very happy because it makes us financially stable. It means our children under the age of 18 don't have to be working with us. Eunice works for a cooperative that sells home goods to a company called All Across Africa, which says it's one of the continent's biggest artisan networks. The artisan sector is the world's second largest employer and can be key to lifting millions out of poverty. But accessing markets is among the biggest challenges artisans face, according to one small survey. We provide training and a skill set to rural artisans, connecting them with the global marketplace. Alicia and her co-founder launched all across Africa in 2013 with the aim of creating jobs. I really love this open weave detail that they've done. The team started by exporting locally made goods abroad, but they soon realized that the secret to success was creating custom orders for brands overseas. It's incredibly important to make our own designs because that's how we create a place in the market for ourselves. All Across Africa works with over 8,000 artisans in three countries, selling their goods to more than 800 retailers worldwide. Products are designed in the US and then sent to the different country headquarters, which in Ghana's case is overseen by Oliver. He works with the master weavers and dye specialists to create a prototype based on the blueprints. Then he sends the materials to local cooperatives to fulfill orders, anywhere from a few hundred items to tens of thousands. Once the product is done, then we'll be able to price material cost, labor cost. That is how we come up with a very fair price. All Across Africa's wages are reviewed by Nest, a non-profit dedicated to supporting handicraft workers, which uses over 100 metrics to measure ethical production. Eunice says the higher pay helped her build a house, send her kids to school and buy some livestock. It's also created better working conditions. We've been taught to not work more than eight hours a day. That's been helpful and we're happy. We used to weave overnight and still not be able to sell enough. Eunice prays that the work doesn't dry up, a responsibility that falls on Alicia's shoulders. Alicia works in the US, ensuring these products have places to be sold. She rarely gets to visit artisans these days, but when she does, she always feels welcome. One special thing about Pogatanga is about the people. Once you step in here, you become part of their family. Now, in the post-pandemic travel boom, airlines have been struggling with the sheer volume of luggage. And sometimes those bags never make it to the reclaim belt. That's what happened to Sandra Schuster from Denver in Colorado, who got that sinking feeling when her bag failed to show up. United told her it was in Baltimore. But according to the Apple AirTag she had hidden in her luggage, that wasn't the case. In fact, it was pinging from O'Hare Airport in Chicago. So as you'll hear, she took matters into her own hands to get it back. And Sandra uh, joins me now to explain more. Sandra, I love your story because so many of us have been in this situation of lost luggage, myself included. But I think few of us would think to add a tracking device to our luggage beforehand. So just to explain what prompted you to do that. Hi, Christina. Um... 
the nature of what was in the bag itself, my daughter's goalie equipment, and we were lacrosse goalie equipment. We were traveling quite a bit back and forth and back-to-back weekends. And it's really hard to replace. It takes a long time to replace it. And that's why we put the air tags in there. Yeah, I guess uh, we all know sports equipment can be pretty expensive. And I know you made multiple attempts to retrieve this, not just from uh, Chicago Airport, but from United Airlines themselves, and you had no luck. So instead, you decided to use your air miles to get on a plane, to go to Chicago Airport and and get it yourself. Uh, When you arrived, how long did it take you to track down that luggage? About 30 seconds. Once I got to the Terminal 1 baggage claim, which is where my air tag said my suitcase was, Um, The agent was very gracious. It took her, I described what it looked like. She went in the back room and came out with it 30 seconds later. I mean, that must be immensely frustrating then that the airlines, I mean, what what was their response to you when you said you had a tracking device, you knew where this was? Um, Well, there there was no response at first. I kept sending the information through. I'd call the 1-800 number. I couldn't get anywhere there. They weren't allowed to call Chicago, which is what I was told. Then when I took to Twitter um, and DM'd United and sent them all the information, no response, just let the baggage team handle it. Um, I even, two days after our Baltimore trip, we went to San Francisco um, for more tournaments and we stopped at the baggage claim there and spoke to a live person thinking they could just pick up the phone and baggage claim and call Chicago and they couldn't. And the response was, well, ma'am, we don't know that your tag is still in your bag insinuating that perhaps the bag had been stolen in the tag set or, or the tag separated in some way from the bag. I mean, so, I mean, presumably this experience will mean that you would advise other travelers to travel to, to put tracking devices in their own luggage. But what would your advice be to the airlines themselves when a customer like yourself, you know, innocently comes and says, please help me. I, I know I can give you a solution to this. Well, To the airlines, I would say, I think when you're large global operations, it's extremely complicated. You need to remember who you're serving, which is the customer, and the customer comes first. Um, United appears to be, and I'm not aware of the experience with other airlines because I frequently fly United because it's a hub here in Denver, but um, they seem to be quite siloed. And the fact that you call the 1-800 number for baggage assistance and they aren't able to call the Chicago or whatever, where your air tag is showing where your bag is, to call any other place is very, very frustrating. So there seems to be quite a breakdown in siloing of operations that United needs to correct. Um, I will add one other lesson learned, if I may, when you drop off your bag, because it was mistagged, they put the wrong tag on my bag and I had someone else's name and claim number. So lesson learned, when you drop off your bag, um, please check that your claim ticket is actually your name and that your bag is tagged correctly. Yeah, just the basics, really, isn't it? Um, well, Sandra, I admire your determination. Uh, thanks for giving us your story. And I'm sure this won't be the first or the last airlines here of uh, tracking devices in luggage. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thank you, Christina. And finally, police in San Diego, California, are hunting for a thief caught on video cuddling and sweet-talking the family dog before making off with a mountain bike. Surveillance footage from the open garage of a home shows a man playing with a golden retriever who appears equally delighted to see him. Take a look. You're the coolest dog I've ever known. I love you too. 
Well, he then took the electric bike worth around $1,300. Police are still looking for the suspect. What a softie. That's it uh, for the show. Thanks so much for joining us uh, right now. Connect the World is coming up after the break. Stay tuned. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.